0: Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Uh, Before we get into uh, this morning's message, uh, I just want to make a quick announcement. We have been over a past number of months um, looking for additional staff to help oversee, uh, particularly our student ministries and children's ministries. And uh, not just a youth pastor, not a children's pastor, but someone who can oversee the big picture, kind of you know, diapers to diplomas idea. And so uh, I am pleased to announce this morning that we have a new staff member coming, uh, Larry Davis and his wife, Michelle, and uh, very excited about that. Um, Larry actually will be with us next weekend, um, and he's going to be kind of doing a commute between Phoenix and and Benicia uh, for the last couple of months because his wife is a teacher, and she can't really leave till the end of the school year. So the whole family will be joining him in June, but uh, we're just excited to have them coming and excited for what that means for us as a church, particularly for our student ministries. So, um, here we go. John, chapter 2. Um, I have, I, I was trying this week, trying to figure out exactly how many uh, weddings I've officiated at. And to be honest with you, I've, I've kind of lost count. It's somewhere in the hundreds. Um, I don't really know. It's just kind of, you know, it all becomes a blur after all these years. But um, one thing I will tell you is there is not one wedding, and you may not know this, or maybe you do about your own wedding, but you may not know this. There is not one wedding that I have been at that at least one thing does not go wrong. I, you notice that? Maybe it happened to you, okay? Maybe, maybe you pulled off the perfect one. But the truth is, in my, my experience, um, you know, it's this huge, big event, and it's planned by amateurs. So you just know things are going to go wrong. I've been, I've officiated a wedding where the groom forgot his tux. Yeah? Um, where the bride in her nerves and catching the flu kind of right there in front on the altar. Uh, Yeah, well, that was ugly. Um, I have been where flower girls halfway down the aisle decide they don't want to do this after all, turn around screaming out to the back doors, you know? I mean, I've seen it all. And uh, weddings are just a really, really big deal. And they're not only a big deal in our time, they're a big deal in Jesus' time. And we're going to read about a wedding this morning, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, if you want to follow along. It says, on the third day... A wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby sat, stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wines first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Verse 11, This is the the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. We're starting this new series looking at the miracles of Jesus. Just... A few of them. And um, you, can't, you can't read the Gospels without seeing all of these miracles. They're in every one of the Gospels numerous times. Um, you, you can't deny them because they were just a huge part of his ministry. And there's those who would like to say, well, they weren't really miracles or this kind of coincidence. But if you deny the miracles, you've got to like throw out almost half of the Gospels because it, it's just replete with all of these things that Jesus did. So the question is, why did he perform them? What was he doing? What was it all about, and and even more so, what does it mean to us? What's the significance for us today? And it's important to understand that in Jesus performing miracles, this was not like some traveling carnival show, you know, magic show going on, you know, from village to village. Hey guys, watch this, hocus pocus, you know. It wasn't that. There was something far deeper going on. There was purpose and meaning to the things that Jesus did. Certainly, it provided immediate help or, or relief from pain or illness right then and there. And, and it did display that God's power was on Jesus as he performed them. And certainly, it did gather crowds. And it inspired the faith of disciples. But I think there's even something more than that. And, and you pick it up, particularly in John's gospel, because every one of the gospels, the way that John tells them, every one of John's gospel stories about the miracles, he uses this one word for them. He calls them signs, which means they're just signs pointing to something else. That, that, that each of the miracles, particularly in John's gospel, they were signs pointing to a deeper truth with a greater meaning. And we're told in this one particularly that what happened was that he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So I want to ask you this morning, have you ever thought about this? Why did Jesus start his miracles with this? I mean, if you were going to start and launch a brand new ministry, I mean, wouldn't you pick something like really spectacular, like raise somebody from the dead? You know, just start that. Day. Everybody would be flocking to you by then. But he starts with something that's really insignificant. I mean, only a handful of people even knew it happened. Jesus, his disciples, servants, and Mary. That was it. Why? And, and by the way, I think that's a pretty good indicator that this is true. Because if somebody was going to write a story about a man, and and I think he would embellish it. I think he would. If this was made-up stuff, you'd start with the big miracles. But John says, no, this is the first one. A very seemingly insignificant thing. Why? Why is this the first miracle Jesus does? It's not that big a deal. Not what you would expect. But it says he was revealing his glory. So what was it specifically that he was trying to show us and then how are we supposed to respond to that because i think there's some really deep things that he is pointing to i think one of the things that jesus is showing us is that joy is at the heart of who god is it's at the heart of who he is he sets the stage he says on the third day a wedding took place in cana in galilee Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. He's setting the stage. This all happened at a party, at a wedding reception. And and this wedding reception had been going on, like, for days and days and days. And and, and this is where he chooses his first miracle. See, I think we seriously underestimate the significance of joy to God. I think we do. I, I I don't think we realize how important it really is to Him. It's at the core of who He is. I think that's what Jesus is revealing here. And I think most people, most people's perception of God, most people's perception particularly of Christianity, and even some Christians' perception of Christianity, is more like it's a chore. You know, it's a lot of do's and don'ts. It's kind of a, you know, just say no. <laughs> Stay out of trouble, toe the line, keep your nose clean, suck it up. I know it's misery, but... If you want to avoid hell, this is the way it is, you know? And just think about it. Why do you think most people are not in worship this morning? Why do you think it is that most people are not spending their Sunday morning gathered together in worship? One of the biggest reasons I think, one I hear a lot, well, you know, I did the church thing when I was, I was younger. Now I want to have Fun. I want to enjoy myself. I want want to have a good time. And Christianity, that's just like, oh, man, why would I want that? And the worst part about that is I think some Christians, a lot of Christians live their life in Christ that way. And that's what people see. We are the ones who are giving that impression. But Jesus says, that's not God. God... He is is joy at the core of his being. There is no coincidence that he does his first miracle at a wedding feast. In fact, if you read through the Old Testament, you find over and over again, feasts are really, really important to God. God established holidays, and they weren't just like a one-day holiday. They were like weeks of of, of feasting. And you all know the book of Deuteronomy. Most of you do. That's where the Ten Commandments are found. It's the giving of the law. And we all know the Ten Commandments. Well, maybe you know like seven out of ten, but that's not too bad, okay? But we're all familiar with, there's ten of them anyway, even if we don't know what they are. We all know that thou shalt and thou shalt not's. But have you ever read this verse in the book of Deuteronomy? It is God instructing his people on how to celebrate. He says, take the money and buy anything you wish. Cattle, sheep, wine, beer, or anything you wish Then you and your family will eat and celebrate there before the Lord your God. He says, when you go into this land that I promised you, here's one of the things you got to do. You got to (laughs) party. Now, he's not condoning um, substance abuse here. Okay, Be really, really clear about that. Because that just brings misery. But what he is saying is you need to train yourself in joy. (laughs) You need to celebrate because Jesus is revealing here that God is a God of joy. Weddings are a big deal today. Average cost of a wedding in the United States these days um, is somewhere between fifteen and $25,000. Yeah, actually, yeah. that's why there's a lot of poor parents walking around, you know. It's actually 28000 but they said, yeah, but that... That's like Brad and what's her, Angelina. You know, that's like these million-dollar weddings are kind of thrown in there too. Because if you factor those things out, it's closer to like 20000 Still, I used to be able to buy a car for that. You know, $20,000. they are a big deal today. And let me tell you some of the productions I have seen. But it was even a bigger deal back, deal back in Jesus' day. It went on for days. This is the third day now. The third day of celebration. And... They've run out of wine. And there's a guy that's really important at the wedding. He's, he's called the master or the lord of the banquet, the lord of the feast. And, and he's kind of like, he's the MC. he He's the DJ. He's keeping the party going. It's his job to make sure that everybody's getting enough to eat, enough to drink, that they're having enough fun, that it's really going to keep, he's the life of the party. It's his job. And he comes to the point and realizes they're out of wine. Now, the party's been going on two days. But when the wine runs out, party's over. (laughs) And this is, you know, this is kind of, it's not a huge thing, but it's it's a pretty important thing. Because there's a lot of embarrassment involved now. And I think what Jesus is revealing to us is in, in providing the wine for the banquet, he is telling us he is the true Lord of the feast. He's the true master of the banquet. He is the true MC. He is the one that gives life and enjoyment and keeps it going. And, and for those of us who think that, that our spiritual life is, is drudgery, we are missing something huge. Because Jesus' whole life was filled with joy. He told parables. We read the parables and we think, oh, they're profound teachings. A lot of them were humorous stories. You know, we don't get it, because it's a Jewish humor. And it doesn't really translate well into English anyway. So you know, Jesus talks about a camel you know, going through an eye of a needle, and we want, to, we want to parse that out. Well, see, in ancient days, the eye of the needle was a small gate in the city wall. Blah, blah 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 blah. It was a joke. <laughs> he was saying it is harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God than for a camel to get through the eye of a needle, and everybody around him went, "Eye of a needle, camel? <laughs> That's a great one." It was a joke. His parables are filled with humor, and his life was filled with joy. He actually enjoyed hanging out with people. We sometimes have this picture that Jesus kind of went around with his his hands in the pocket of his robe, kicking stones, and you know. He went enjoying life. In fact, that was the greatest complaint against him by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They, 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 They accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton and a friend with the wrong kinds of people. That was his reputation. Now, he wasn't a glutton, and he wasn't a drunkard, but he was friends with the wrong kind of people. See, the Pharisees had made religion a burden. They had made a life with God an overwhelming burden heaped on people's back. In fact, Jesus even said that. You heap up burdens on the backs of people, and you do nothing, you don't lay a finger to relieve the load. They had missed something very, very important because, again, go through the Old Testament over and over again. You find that God keeps comparing our relationship with him to a celebration, to a feast. And you all know, maybe, well, maybe some of you don't, but many of you know um, the prophet Isaiah. It's one of the most famous prophecies where he talks about the coming Messiah, that, that he was a man acquainted with grief. He talks about the suffering servant. But did you know also in Messiah, there is this promise, in Isaiah, this promise, 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. He will swallow up death forever. That God intends our life with Him to be filled with joy because it is the heart of who He is. Can you imagine, can you imagine just from, just think with me, what it would look like if the reputation of Christians, if the Christians were known for their love and their joy, what a different impact we would have on our world. If we were not known for picketing and shouting curses at people and condemning people and judging people, if, the, if Christians were known as people of love and joy, who loved one another and shared generously with one another and cared for one another and celebrated together, if that was what people saw in Christianity, I think it would be a lot more attractive. And the truth is those are the things God called us to do. To love. and To joy. There's something else here. I think Jesus is also reminding us this, that sorrow, it's real, but it's temporary. Pain, yeah, it's real, but it's temporary. Joy is forever. The story goes, and in the middle of this celebration, things start to go wrong. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, she's just not making a comment there is an implied expectation that Jesus is going to do something about this. And, and the response just is like, it's a non sequitur to end all non sequiturs. He says this, Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. What does that have to do with there not being wine? It's just like, those, those two sentences don't go together. It's very, very strange. And, and then on top of that, why would you answer that way? and then turn around and perform the miracle. What's going on here? I mean, did Jesus change his mind? You know, it was just kind of like, oh, all right, mother, if you, you know. (laughs) What's going on? We know by that there's got to be something else, something far more profound. And I think it's this. I think that as he's attending that wedding, his mind is somewhere else. And think about this for yourself, because I know it's true of me. When you attend a wedding, particularly if you are single, but I think even if you are married, when you go and attend a wedding, what is one of the things you really think about a lot? Your own wedding. If you've never been married, you think about what it would be like for you to be walking down the aisle, for you to be standing up on the, on the, on the altar. And even if you've been married, you, kinda, you compare a little bit about that wedding and, and your own wedding. My tux was a lot brighter blue than his, you know? <laughs> that's what you do. You, you don't just, I mean, you're celebrating there, but, but you're also thinking about your own wedding, either what it will be like when you get the chance to walk the aisle or, or what it was like when you were the one. And I think that's what's going on with Jesus. He's not just involved in this one. He's thinking about something down the road. He's thinking about his own future. And we have hints of that. We know that from Scripture because throughout the Old Testament, over and over again, this metaphor of, of a groom to a bride, um, to a husband, to a wife, that's over and over. Through the, when, when, um, when God speaks to his prophets, he talks about a groom you know, wanting to have his bride and love her. And, and, and Jesus himself, when he was um, challenged, because uh, the Pharisees said, well, how come everybody else's disciples fast, but your disciples don't? And what did Jesus say? He said, when the bridegroom is with his attendants, they don't fast. He's associating himself with being the groom. In fact, the very next chapter, John the Baptist. John the Baptist's disciples come to him and they say, Do you know that more people are following Jesus than you? I mean, people are leaving your church and they're going to this other church, you know? They're leaving your following and they're going to follow somebody else. Doesn't that bother you? John said this, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. (laughs) The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. He's saying, I'm just the best man. He's the groom. And you find that over and over and over. And I think that's what Jesus is thinking about. In fact, there's another hint to that. And doesn't quite come across in the NIV because it says, my time has not yet come. But literally, it says, my hour. Now, that is a very, very important term in John's gospel. If you read through the gospel of John, over and over again, Jesus refers to my hour. He does it in chapter 7, verse 30. Chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 12, verse 23. Chapter 13, verse 1. Over and over again. And what that signifies, that hour, my hour, is the hour of his death. When he speaks of my hour, he is talking about his coming arrest and crucifixion. And so when he says, my hour has not yet come, he is not thinking about the wedding that's going on here. He's thinking about a wedding down the road. Because that's the picture that God gives us of the relationship he wants for us. This very same writer, John, who wrote this gospel, also had a revelation from God. It's the last book in our Bible. And here's what it says. The very last chapter, Revelation 21, 2 says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Jesus is thinking about his wedding day, if you will. And there's something about that. Because it's telling us about our relationship, what he wants for us in this relationship. Because he's not talking just about being our king and us being his... his he's our, our king and we are, are his servants. And not just that, that he's the shepherd and we are the sheep. And not even that he is the father and we are his children. He uses the most intimate of relationships, a husband and wife. And he's saying, that's the kind of relationship I want with you. One of complete, unconditional love and a depth of relationship That can only be described as that of a husband to his wife. I've officiated a number of weddings. And there is one thing that I have seen over and over and over again. And most of you don't get this privilege, okay? Maybe once or twice in your life, maybe. Um, But there's a point in the wedding when everybody, all the attendants are up front. and, And the best man and the groom are right down at the very, very foot. And the music stops. And then it changes to a new song. And the doors open, and there she is. And you know what? And I've I've seen this over and over again. It doesn't matter what she looks like in real life. (laughs) Honestly, it doesn't matter what she looks like in reality. Because at that moment, she is the most beautiful person in the world. She is gorgeous. She is ravishing. She is radiant. And and I've, I've seen it over and over again. And the groom stands there, and he just can't wait for her to get down the aisle. And that is the picture. That is the picture that we are given. That's what God wants for us. That he is like that groom that longs for us to just walk down the aisle and join him in this relationship. And I think that's what Jesus is thinking about. But more than that, what he's really thinking about, I think, is what's it going to take to provide the wine for my wedding feast you remember the last night he spent with his disciples and he broke bread and said this is my body and then he took the cup and what did he say this is my blood the new covenant in my blood he knows his wedding feast is going to require sacrifice on his behalf turning water into wine is nothing because there's going to come a time when wine is going to be turned into blood and that blood is going to be the salvation of the world and I think that is the thing that is weighing on his heart and I think what he is telling us is this whole idea that yes, sorrow and pain in this world it's real but it is temporary joy is forever. And because he drank the cup of bitterness, because he drank that cup of sorrow, we can celebrate in the marriage feast. And the only reason we can truly have joy is because of his sorrow. And I think that's just a reminder to us. It might be real and it might get hard down here, but this is not the end of the story. This is just temporary. Our joy. Is eternal. I think there's one more truth that's revealed. And this is a very, very important one. And this is the thing I want you to take with you as you go out. The power to choose joy is in your hands. You have the choice. No matter what's going on in your life, you have the choice. The power to choose joy is in your hands. Now, some of you are saying, How in the world can I do that? How can I choose joy in the midst of pain? How can I be... What I'm going through... How how can I be joyful in the middle of this? Because some of us here this morning are living in verse 3. We have run out. We have run out. We have run out of steam. We've run out of resources. We've run out of options. We've run out of strength. We've even run out of hope. How can you be joyful? I mean, I am barely coping. How can I possibly choose joy? But you see... One of the distinguishing characteristics of authentic joy is its tenacity to not only exist, but to thrive in the midst of adversity. It is the choice. Karl Barth, theologian, put it this way. Joy is a defiant nevertheless. Nevertheless. It's reflected in in the prophet Habakkuk. And uh, this is not in your outline but it's going to be on the screen. This is what Habakkuk wrote. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my savior it is the choice of joy that no matter how difficult it gets this is temporary joy is forever and i can choose that even in the middle of what's going on and i'm not talking about just putting on a happy face and i'm not talking about you know just conjuring up some positive mental attitude it is the joy that comes from the understanding that no matter what goes on in my life, my life is in God's hands, and ultimately it is for my good, though I don't understand it. And there are times, not often, but there are times that I come in some mornings early before everybody else, and I go into my office. And there are times that I sit in my office, and I am acutely aware of the weight of my responsibility as a pastor. And I'm challenged by by the mission and calling that God has given us as a church and and question my own abilities to lead us in that direction. There are times when the weight of it really feels overwhelming to me and the financial pressures and the concerns and the needs of individuals in our congregation weigh heavy on me. They just do. In times that it is so overwhelming. And one of those times was just this week. And I was thinking about that in preparation for this message and about choosing joy. And I just want to read you what I wrote in my journal. I made a conscious decision. I will thank God for the calling He has placed on my life, for the giftings He has given me to fulfill it, I will praise him for the people he has placed around me to carry the load. I will praise him for the ways he has provided in the past and the challenges that lie ahead of us where we, he will once again show his faithfulness for the tremendous opportunities he has placed before us and for the sheer adventure he has summoned me to join in with him. And by his strength, I will live and I will teach, and I will serve with joy. Today, today, I will celebrate God's goodness and greatness, and I will rejoice in Him. That and that page in my journal is bookmarked, because I'm going to read that page often, I know. But there is a sense at which we have got to stop Woe is me, and man is the burden so heavy. And yet, I know the realities of that. I know some of you are facing that. But there is a choice that we can make to say, I will not let this defeat me because my God is greater than any challenge. And He has the strength to carry me through any difficulty. And He has all the resources to provide more than I could possibly ask or imagine. So I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the Lord my Savior. And I'll give you some very practical ways you can do this. One is this, and they are practices. Bring to Him even the little things. Even the little things. The things you think are insignificant, why should I bother God with this? You can bring Him the little things. Mary brought a very little thing, they ran out of wine. No great crisis. Nobody's going to die. A little thing. You can bring him the little things because he cares about every detail of your life. And then with that, you've got to surrender to his timing. Because sometimes it might feel you're getting the brush off like Mary did. And and it might be a while before you see anything happen. But what did Mary say? She went to the servant and said, do whatever He tells you. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what it is. But whatever He tells you, you do it. <laughs> and you might feel like you're getting the brush off from God right now. Just do whatever He tells you. Surrender to His timing. And no matter how hard, no matter how hard it gets now, always remember your future. Always remember that as difficult as it is now, there is something better Ahead. The, the wine is brought for the, the master's ceremonies and he, he, he drinks from it and he goes to the bridegroom and he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you, you have saved the best till now. God often saves the best for last. And it might be hard now but he saves the best for last. And make the choice. Make the choice to rejoice. All through the Psalms, David writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul. He keeps telling himself, Praise God, bless God, enjoy God. Because sometimes we need to remind ourselves of that. And I love this one. It's one of my favorite verses. Psalm one eighteen twenty four. 24. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day. Not yesterday. Man, wasn't yesterday cool? Yesterday, man, oh man, good times, you know. And not tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be another day. Thinking about tomorrow. <laughs> he says, this is... Is the day. Today. This is your day. Today is your day. Rejoice. And be glad in it. Because this is the day. And you can you can you can complain about the past and you can worry about the future. But he says, Today, rejoice. Rejoice. You have that choice. You have that choice. Bring Him even the little things because He cares about them all. Surrender, though, to His timing. Whatever He tells you to do, you do it. And just always remember He saves the best for last. Would you bow your heads with me?